We, we've been talking through the book of Exodus, Exodus for a while. And, and I just want to say to you that in the next two weeks, we're going to come to an end as we journey, have journeyed since July last year. It's been 10 months of being in the book of Exodus. We have had a period where we looked at just the celebrating of what Jesus had done for us recently through Easter. But over the t- this Sunday and next Sunday, I want to come to an end um, going through the book of Exodus. But I hope that it will be actually like this wonderful time of just celebrating this beautiful book these last two weeks. And so I want to ask you to stay with me as we journey through it finally. And this morning, I want to just head it up over there. The title is Drawn Out to be Drawn In. When we started in July, we said to one another, oh yeah, the screens have to be turned on again. But when we started with the series back then in July, we introduced you this concept that, that God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and His whole intention was not just to draw them into another nation. He drew them out because He had an intention in, in His heart to draw them into a fellowship and a relationship with Him. And so what we find that there are these sentences that appear in the, in the book of Exodus that are repeatedly found. And then the sentence goes, goes like this, let my people go, which is the next slide there. It says, let my people go. But we have found that that's an incomplete sentence when we started and still it's relevant here. Is that when that word or those words are shared, it is either God speaking to Moses saying, you've got to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Then eventually Moses and Aaron appear in front of Pharaoh and they say to him, God says, let my people go. But as we said, it's not a complete sentence. Because the second part of that, the next slide, says and, and explains to us, it always, almost always concludes with, that they may serve me. And you'll see those times whenever uh, Moses would be speaking to Pharaoh, he said, God says, let my people go so that they may serve me. Some translations would say that they may worship me so that they would consecrate themselves unto me. So Canaan is not the, the, the ultimate destination. God is. By the way, that's why we don't have a physical destination. Heaven is not our destination. God is. So even today as we sit here, I don't have a destination where I'm, I'm working for. One day maybe that could be my ultimate experience. And I, often we live with that. we like, this is my bucket list. I, I want to one day still accomplish all these things. Nothing wrong with that. But ultimately we live for God. He is our ultimate destination. So when we are drawn out of sin, or drawn out, there's something heavy on the, on the generator. Sorry, I don't know if it's the urns that are still on. Thank you, guys. Um, so the point is this, that, that when God releases us, okay, guys, we're all back, good, don't worry. When God releases us from sin, when we are moved out of slavery, He takes us into something else, and it's not a place a person. And we need to stand that in this whole beautiful book of Exodus that God had an intention for them to be freed from sin 
to be freed for something else. And continue with something that happened. And let me take you to Exodus chapter 4 quickly. As we go right back almost to the beginning. Something happened in Exodus 4. We don't have time to go through all the details of this. But in Exodus 4 verse 31, um, God had, had been speaking to Moses and, and it says here in verse 31, as he appeared in front of the, to the people of Israel, and he told them that God has this in his mind to free them. It says in verse 31, and the people believed. People believed what Moses had to say and Aaron. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. I just want to say this is probably the first time that these people had done this. Or recorded at least. The people that were slaves and for 400 years had been slaves. At this moment when they heard that God is interested in them and wanted to help them, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. And this is what needed to continue. Acts, oh, Acts, listen to me. Exodus 4 verse 31. That moment God wanted to take them out and say, I'm going to free you from what, have ke- what has kept you from doing this so that you can be free to worship me. All your days of your life. And so this is where we are. Again, we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And we've just done it over Easter. He's freed us from sin. Amen? He's freed us from a miserable life. But He's freed us for something. Not just deliverance from the past. But He's freed us to worship Him. And to engage Him in that way. And so hence the whole um, topic that we want to focus on. That we're drawn out. To be drawn in. And today this is the challenge that the church faces all over the world. That people reckon I don't need God. And the, and the real purpose of the church, by the way, for us as here, King City, and worldwide, is that, that this does not exist. That Acts 4, oh, Acts again, sorry. Exodus 4 verse 31 is not real in so many people's lives that they're not bowing and not worshiping the real God. There is worship, but there's worship of all sorts of things taking place today. There's the worship of people. There's the worship of fame. There's the worship of money. There's the worship of recognition. There's the worship of sport. There's the worship of sex. There's so much money in that interest industry, and we don't have time to go into that. So there's all sorts of worship taking place. Hence, the purpose of the church is the restoration of the worship of God. And so our purpose as a church is to see that reinstated. And we talk about it here so that we can go and share it wider than this building. And so we want to see what we can learn about worship from the last eight chapters of Exodus, as we take these last two weeks just talking through the rest of Exodus, I want to just take you through a couple of things that we can learn from these chapters about worship. And, and we're going to do it in the next two weeks, as I said. So the first thing I want to share with you this morning as we consider these final few chapters is um, coming from Exodus 33 is, first of all, that worship involves sacrifice. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles... Page there, swipe there, do whatever you want to do to get there, but try to get there, please. And if you don't have a Bible, that's at home, that's fine. Please bring it along. If you don't have a Bible at all, please talk to us. Go to the Info Hub and just say, listen, I really don't have a Bible. Could you possibly help? We'd love to. 
So Exodus 33, verses 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I saw to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Wow. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this, discussion, this, this, this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. God clearly says to them here that he will not hold back on his promises to them. He will drive out the enemy in front of them. He will be there helping them to get to the land. But here he says, it's no longer he himself that will accompany them, but an angel. And the reason, he says, in verse 3, you're a stiff-necked people. If you consider the word stiff-necked, it really means to be stubborn, unyielding, or unbending. Something that seemingly started occurring regularly in the lives of the people here, the Israelites. The irony is that actually the man that released them to eventually be released out of Egypt, Pharaoh, the Bible says he was stiff-necked. So how ironic is it that they became just like the man who released them? They've just become like the one who ruled them. And so what we find here is that this stubbornness, this unyielding, this unbending attitude, we simply call it sin. All right? You want to agree with me? A wonderful thing to talk about, S-I-N, sin. But it's real. We've got to talk about it because, yeah, we see that God says, listen, you guys can go. I'll send an angel to go with you. I'm not going to come with you because you're stiff-necked. There's something in your heart that I despise, which really means to us and says to us that sin is always costly. Sin is a costly thing. And Israel's sin had not only led to the death of thousands of people before this moment, but the costliest thing is that they were about to lose the presence of God with them. Seemingly, they didn't listen or didn't learn. They had lost so much already up to this point through their stiff-neckedness, their stubbornness, their rebellion. And so now they're about to lose the most precious thing that they've had, God with them. God says the reason because you're stubborn. Charles Spurgeon, a well-known Christian author, once said the following. He says, God never permits his people to sin successfully. God never permits his people to sin successfully. Really just meaning that, that God does not celebrate sin. Amazing, though, is that we find that in this portion that I've just read, the grace of God manifesting. And Moses conveying to them that the Lord says, there is a way. 
possibly for you out of this. And he imparts to them, he says, if you're willing to sacrifice something, God's presence may return. If you, if you consider worship to the Lord as something important, you can understand that it will be, it will require sacrifice. And so here we find that they, in their morning, they, it says here, they took off their ornaments. See there with me um, in verse 4, as they were mourning, it says, and no one put on his ornaments. Kind of like a strange thing. It's like, well, what does that really mean? But we see that these things are, are directly linked to their stubbornness, to their stiff-neckedness. Because we find that in, in Exodus 32, when they were building this golden calf, remember? And it led to a, you know, a very sad moment where they actually turned their backs against God, which is part of the stiff-neckedness. What happened was they took these ornaments, these gold and these gold items that they had, which, by the way, they got as they left Egypt. These are slaves. Where do they get ornaments from? And gold items and all sorts of things. They were given it. The Egyptians were just so happy for them to actually go that they gave them these gifts. And later on, as we go further into these next few chapters, you'll see also what they had done with it. But what they did with these ornaments initially, they took them and let them be turned into a golden calf that they could worship. So the ornaments were indicative, very symbolic of their stiff nakedness, their stubbornness before the Lord. So what they said, okay, we won't wear we won't have these things on us because it's, it's actually a sign of repentance. We recognize what we had done was wrong. And it's an appropriate sign of repentance from the sin which they had committed earlier. They were desperate. Obviously, we're great God to send us an angel, but what we really prefer is you. And so we'll take these ornaments from. Whether it was real repentance it's actually still doubtful because we see uh, this thing repeated again, their stubbornness. But in that moment, can the grace of God. He says, I'll give you an opportunity. If you remove these, and if there's sacrifice involved with your worship, I'll accept you. I'll accept you. So we're going to ask ourselves the question then, is God and the worship of Him currently more important to me than holding on to any sin? That so brutally affects my walk with him. Because for the Israelites, they, they realize that this indicates our sin. And so I've got to let go of that stuff. They want to hold on to it because I want to turn back to God. I want God in my life. I want his presence with me. I don't want to go without him. An angel is great, but it's not the best. And so in that moment, they said, whatever has been important to us, we're willing to let go because God's presence and God's values are much more important to me than anything else. I want to just stop and recognize these friends of mine. They just come in. They have, weren't able to come earlier. Great friends from Utari and the surrounding areas. Pastors Dore, Chibanga, and uh, Wakanda. There you go. Welcome, you guys. It's good to have you. Thank you. Welcome them, please. Um, so they recognized that they couldn't go without God's presence, and they're willing to let go of what would become dear to them. 
I don't know in your worship today of God how important things are. Are they more important than God? And we've got to assess that in our own lives. That worship of God involves sacrifice. And this is what we read out of this book is that God spoke to them and said, guys, these things are not supposed to be more important to you than me. Why don't you turn with me to Ephesians? I want to just take you into the New Testament and show to you just a, a comparison from the New Testament to what we've just been reading about. Ephesians 4 and verse 17 to 19 says this. Paul writing about this new life that he says, guys, this is what God has for you. He says in Ephesians 4 verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He says, worship involves sacrifice. Consider that in the back of your mind. He says, do not walk as they do, in the fertility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. Recognize that a little bit with the Israelites? They have become callous. And they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's what he says who they are. And so Paul is actually here imploring on us, saying, do not be like the Israelites. Do not be like the Gentiles, that this is the way they live. And so when you come to worship God, be prepared to sacrifice unto you. And whatever it is that have become, whatever ornament, an inverted comma, that you have in your life, that you need to let go, that I have in my life, that I need to let go of. I need to be prepared because worship involves sacrifice. Worship involves sacrifice. There's a man that I picked up something from that I want to share with you, a man called Mark Driscoll. He, he shares this, that when Christians are involved in sin, when things have become so important to them, he says they really only have four options. I'm going to go through all four of them quickly with you. The first option, he says, is, is the option of minimization, where we try to imagine sin to keep it from getting worse, or try to manage, not imagine, try to manage sin to keep it from getting worse. But sin is like cancer, he writes. Either you kill it or it kills you. So we look at sin and we look at this thing that we need to sacrifice because we want to worship God. We want to give unto Him all that we need to give but there's this sin in our lives, and we're like, ah, oh, no, it's not that serious. Come on. We just minimize it. But it's there. And we're not dealing with it. We're actually allowing it to deal with us. Because that's what sin will do. You just give it that much space. And it comes in, and it wants all of the space. It won't just be happy with 10% of your life. The second thing he says that, that we treat sin with, or the way in which we treat sin, is we cop compartmentalize it and here what we do is we try to hide it now <laughs> we don't minimize it we now just try to hide it hide it and we live a secret double life anxiously hoping you don't get caught exposed and found out let's just just try to hide it over there and pretend it's not there and we allow sin in our lives and we don't deal with it and we pretend it's okay the third thing he says what we do with sin is we celebrate it. We kind of just then say, well, that's just part of my life. This is a, I can't get rid of this. I can't overcome it. I accept it as my new identity, and I'm proud of it, even though I actually should be ashamed of it. 
And he says, this explains why the world has parades for things when it should have funerals for it. Isn't it true? We see things paraded, not just physically in the streets, but even on television, things are celebrated that should actually be killed, should, should be destroyed. And so in our lives as well, if we, if we do this, if we celebrate sin, we, we cultivate an atmosphere of sin. That's what we always say, isn't it? Whatever you celebrate, you cultivate. And so if we celebrate sin, we're allowing it and it just spreads. <laughs> and when we as Christians come and we know I'm going to stop against it, no, no, no. We're like, come on, what's wrong with you guys? Get into the, the rhythm of what's happening in this world. Everybody is celebrating it. What's wrong with you guys? We cannot. But even as believers, we tend to do that. The final thing that he writes that we need to do about sin is this. We need to have, we need to be liberated from it. We need to walk in the freedom God intends by killing what is killing you. Repent of it. And go back with me to Ephesians where we've just been. Where Paul encourages us to be quite strong with this. And so this is where repentance comes in, where we say, God, yeah, I, I recognize, I, maybe I have minimized it, I've compartmentalized it, I've actually celebrated it, but Lord, this, today I need to deal with it strongly. I need to repent of it so that I can be liberated from it. And in Ephesians 4, the further verses from verses 20 onward now, it says, but, see that but? Hey, be you one t but that is not the way you learned Christ, he writes to the Ephesian church. He says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self. That's what he says. Put it away. Deal with it, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, guys, this is how we need to deal with sin. We need to be liberated from it. Don't celebrate it. Don't put it in one corner. Don't minimize it and just pretend that it's not that big and that important. It is. It wants to kill you. So the question we need to ask is, what are you and I willing to do with any current sin in our lives? There are four options. You have four options. I implore on you not to use any of the first three, but only the latter one. I got up early this morning, and I'm not trying to boast by sharing this story with you. I normally do when, on a Sunday, particularly just to finish my prep and get my heart ready. And, and uh, I remember... I had done my work and I'd done everything that I needed to do and these things take some time and uh, I felt, I just want to rest and I can easily sleep just on the floor so I've got a pillow and I just in my study, I went down and I set my alarm so that I could be awake again for what needed to be done, clothing, stuff like that um, and I don't think it was more than 10 minutes that I was fast asleep and I woke up with this this urge in my spirit, this, this, I felt I was alerted by God. I had this dream, just in that, that short space of time. I had this dream, I, 
I remember I was in this house and outside the yard of this house and I, and I remember seeing people around and I saw this vehicle coming in. It was such a strange kind of picture. It wasn't a normal vehicle, like one of these caterpillars and it had a trailer behind it. And I saw this caterpillar pulling up into this driver of the house and, and it wanted to park and then it lost track and it started slipping down and I remember these terraces of the house that I had in this dream it had these high terraces and, and it was the high embankment and, and this, this vehicle or this thing started slipping down and it lost control of itself and it went into this yard and it went through walls and, and I saw people running and, and I saw just disaster coming and, and I was just like that I woke up and I was like oh, gee God that was intense I thought it was God. And then I prayed and I felt, I think God is wanting to warn us about things in our lives that we are just allowing. And it's bringing such destruction to those around us. And I remember seeing just people that I recognized in this dream. I could identify people. And I'm like, oh, please don't let them be damaged and hurt by this thing that is slipping down. It's this massive vehicle thing. And I, and I was concerned for them. And five, ten minutes later in this dream, I woke up. And I'm like, God, what is this? And in line with what I'm sharing with you, I don't want to. And we don't often highlight the issue of sin because we love to highlight the issue of righteousness and holiness and the beauty of what God has done for us. But gentlemen, ladies, we've got to stop. We've got to consider our own lives. And if there's anything currently in your life that is out of control, there's a potential to bring great destruction to your life and those around you. And if it has anything to do with sin, I implore of you, please deal with it. Come before the Lord Jesus and ask him to forgive you for whatever it is. And sometimes we think there's big sin and there's small sin. There's nothing like that. There's sin. Sin is sin. And sin, because the, the, the author of sin is the devil himself. And he's out to kill, steal, and destroy. He doesn't want you just to impart of his way of life and, and to be part of that. He wants to eventually kill, steal, and destroy your life and your marriage and your family and your business and everything around you. And if you've allowed any form of sin in your life, Please, there's only one option really. It's to repent of it, not to minimize it, not to compartmentalize it, not to celebrate it, but to confess it before the Lord. And I ask right now that we will just use this moment. This is such a serious thing that we don't want to just move on to the next point. And, but I want to ask you just to close your eyes. I want to let you, we all want to walk in the freedom that God has for us. And God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross that you and I can be free and not walk under this weight and this curse of sin. But be completely free from what it can, has done and will do. And so my friend, as you sit before the Lord, I want to give you space, time. To behold God, and then at the same time, if there's anything in your life that you've minimized, 
compartmentalized, celebrated even. That is, that is sin, that you know it's sin. Just before the Lord, why don't you repent of that and confess it and say, Jesus, this is wrong. Always will be wrong. Please forgive me for allowing this in my life and causing, allowing it to cause damage. Sometimes we think it's not that bad, but it is bad. Always will be. It's destructive. And so, Holy Spirit, I thank you for just convicting us, not condemning. You never do that. You come to convict. I pray that your presence amongst us will convict people to say, God, please forgive me. I repent of my sin. I ask you to cleanse me of all this stuff. I want to walk away from a, a known sin, a willful sin. Even those sins that we just sometimes play off and play down and say, ah, oh, no, it's not. Even the sin of grumbling and complaining and of arguing constantly, of always having different opinions about things and trying to prove that I'm better. Father, please forgive us this morning. I thank you for your grace. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The second thing I want to present to you this morning that, that these last few chapters help us to understand about worship is that worship is a personal matter. Worship is a personal matter. We read together in, in Exodus again from chapter 33. Once more we go there and we read in, chapter, in verse 7 it says the following. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Amazing that they would go there. Whenever Moses would, went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend, which is indicative of God's presence, and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Now listen to this. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. So that's amazing. As, as they saw Moses going into the tent and the pillar of cloud descending there, they were inspired to do the same, to go to their tent and worship the Lord from their tent. So Moses' worship of God and the way that he presented himself to the Lord regularly became very obvious to the people. They could see it. But what it did to them is not just, oh wow, is Moses going into the tent to meet with God. It inspired them to do the same. So worship became a personal matter. It wasn't just a collective thing. It wasn't just a group thing. That everybody did it together when we would go to a Sunday gathering. <laughs> and we would all be in a moment together under a roof and we would now celebrate and worship God. But here we find in verse 10 that they would also rise up and worship each at his 
tent door. So they watched and noticed what Moses was doing. And they did the same. I love that. That God in that moment also explains to us, this is why I drew the people out. I drew them out to draw them in to this that I had for them. So that they each could personally start worshiping me. So that's Moses. That's the Israelites. Inevitably, we need to talk about you and me. So, do I have my own private worship of God? Do you have that? I'm not talking about a tent. I'm not talking about a place where you go to. I'm talking about a relationship with Him where your worship is very personal. Where it's not just corporate. Where we come together and there's somebody that, that leads us in what a beautiful way that the team had done in music and song. But it's something very personal where I take time. We're at my tent, so to speak. I bow down and I worship Him because I'm inspired by what others do. That's why we say on a Sunday we come together to do this collectively, but we also use this moment to be inspired to go, as we said earlier on, to go and behold God on our own. How's your private worship? You see, your public life today is determined by your private worship of God. Your public life is, should be, should be affected by your private worship of God. But if there's an absence of private worship of God, it will still be shown in your public life. So whatever happens privately in our lives is eventually shown, isn't it? People say that, you know, whatever you eat in private, people will see in public. You can't, you can't hide that one. And so, how's your private life? Because your worship is determined by what you do privately. So the question, is my private worship then also visible to others? Because here we find that Moses did it privately and it was seen by others. Is your private worship, even just at home, is your private worship that you have, and by the way, we, we're assuming that you have, we're assuming that you do have that. I'm not talking about this religious thing of you've got to do this and these things. I'm talking about engaging God, relationally engaging Him. Is that engaging of God, is it known by others? Not, oh, I tell them. No, what God does in your life privately with Him should become known publicly to people. And so is your private worship obvious to others? By the way you live. Not by telling them I had a quiet time this morning of two hours. No, no, what have those two hours done to you and your character and your person and who you are? The absence of a private worship of God will eventually show. So I want to conclude, Just we just touched on two things this morning. We touched on the fact that, that worship Supposed to involve sacrifice. 
And it will continually be that. We may have had the time this morning to repent before the Lord and say, Father, I'm sorry for whatever I've carried with me. But it will stay part of our lives because the presence of sin is still around here on earth. One day we will be without the presence of sin. Praise the Lord. But until then, it's here. But yet we have power over it because of God living inside of us through His Son. And so I want to encourage you, worship involves sacrifice. But worship, firstly also, is a personal matter. And so I encourage you where you are personally in your walk with God. Please ensure that there's private worship taking place in your life. Because your public life depends on what you do privately. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that clearly in this book we can see that you've drawn us out so that we can be drawn in. I pray this morning, Lord God, that people will recognize the need for them, wherever they are in their walk with you, to respond to being drawn in. And I pray, Holy Spirit, if there are people here this morning that have never allowed you to, be, to draw them into a relationship with you, that they will allow you to do that. And I pray for others that have walked with you. I pray, Lord, that there will be a response privately that will show publicly. Now, thank you also that we, we can also accept this, Lord, this, this pattern in our lives, that worship will always be something that needs to happen sacrificially. That we will be willing to give up of ourselves. Our, Jesus, you even said that we need to take up our cross and follow you. There's a sacrifice involved in serving God and living for God. Help us with that, I pray. I trust for this in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.